Welcome to the Kingo Podcast, where we interview published authors, screenwriters, and story consultants to answer the question, what makes a great story? If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. Let's start the show. So today as a guest, I have Dr. Bill Indick. Uh, Dr. Indick is an associate professor of psychology at William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey, where he creates classes in the area of media psychology. He's the author of six books, including Movies and the Mind, Theories of the Great Psychoanalysts Applied to Film, The Psychology of the Western, How the American Psyche Plays Out on Screen, and Psychology for Screenwriters. He's particularly interested in psychology in film as it applies to screenwriting, and we are lucky to have him here today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Indig. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So you've got a truly interesting perspective on story and fiction, uh, obviously from psychology perspective. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this question. What makes a great story? Uh, well, for me, story begins and ends with character. Character is the element of any story and film that um, transcends genre. It transcends um, whether it's a comedy or a horror film or a Western or whatever. The key is character. And if you want someone to listen to your story or watch your movie, uh, you need a character that people can identify with. When, when we watch movies, um, what we're doing, you know, we're, we're looking outwardly, but we're thinking inwardly. We're thinking about our own travels, our own journeys, our own conflicts. Um, so we need a character that we can identify with. Hmm. And do you have any tips along that line for how to bring characters to life, perhaps through psychology? Well, I mean, psychologists are always saying, you know, look within <laughs> that uh all the answers you need are within yourself, and I, it, it can't be any more truer than for the writing process, whether it's writing a book or a novel or a screenplay. Um, you, if you're looking for an interesting character, you have to look in the mirror. That's where you're going to find it. And take your own conflicts, take your own journeys, and uh, uh, relate to them, and then your audience will relate to, to them through your character. Mm, that's fantastic. So do you... So you analyze yourself to create more believable characters on the screen. Um, is there ever any issue with creating varied characters if you're just analyzing yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to get too uh, philosophical. but Oh, please. I, I don't mind at all if you want to. Uh, so so from, a, from the point of subjectivism, we can't really truly know how other people think or how other people feel. All we can do is try to identify with them, meaning try to understand how we would feel in their situation. So any process of, uh, I guess you would call it extrospection or looking at outward people and trying to analyze them is really just a process of introspection, meaning we're trying to figure out how we would feel and think if we were that person and then we just project it onto them. Uh, so if you're writing a screenplay and you have 10 characters in it, each character is yourself, a different reflection of yourself projected into your screenplay, which will then hopefully be projected onto a screen. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and so there are different elements of yourself. Uh, I guess that kind of brings us to archetypes, right? I mean, where, yeah, sure. what do you see as the importance of archetypes? 
Well, an archetype is, uh, you know, from a Jungian perspective, is a mythological figure that we that uh, every person can associate with. Uh, so when uh, you know the term association, you probably uh, relate it to Freud's term of free association, where I say one word and you say the first word that comes to your mind. Yeah. An association is anything that um, any anything that we can reflect upon uh, and connect to our own lives. So the archetypes are these associations that are collective, things that everybody can relate to in one way or another. So for instance, the archetype of the mother figure, which is who's oftentimes portrayed as a goddess, or if it's a bad mother figure, an evil mother figure, she's a wicked witch or a hag or a sorceress. Yeah. Um, so uh, when... Um, when we're watching movies, when we're reading books, we're always on the lookout for archetypes, not consciously, but as Jung, as Jung would insist, it's an unconscious process. Uh, we look for archetypes because that's the way that we relate to things. Again, we can only truly understand someone else by relating it to ourselves. Uh, and these archetypes are very powerful because they're collective, meaning if you could sort of uh, uh, cue into an archetypal theme or an archetypal figure in your work, then literally every person in the world can relate to that. Amazing. So these archetypes then create relatability with the work. Yeah. And there's a, um, I mean, theoretically there are, there can be a limitless number of archetypes. Um, I don't personally agree with that because I think there's a limited number of things that every person who ever lived can relate to. Uh, so I, I usually think that, you know, there's probably less than seven or eight true, truly universal archetypes. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, I, I was reading John York's book, Into the Woods, and he was talking about uh, defense mechanisms and how that drives a lot of character action. Could you go into that at all? Sure. Um, and I write, I, you know, I, I, I believe I wrote about that in at least two of the books. Um, so, uh, probably the most base, well, there are two basic defense mechanisms, meaning things that we unconsciously do when faced with conflict or problem or anything that's going to be damaging to our ego. So the most basic defense mechanisms are denial and repression. And those are wonderful things to reflect upon uh, when writing a movie or writing a character, because if there's a problem in someone's life, um, oftentimes it's very clear to other people, which means it would be clear to the viewer. Yet at the same time, the character is in denial or they're repressing the fact that they have a problem. And that's a very interesting character to look at. <laughs> Somebody who's sort of like a walking injury <laughs> and, the viewer is saying, oh, my God, this person has such serious problems. He really needs to do something about it. But at the same time, he's not even aware of it because he's in the midst of denial and repression. So it creates tension. It creates suspense. It creates uh, identification because we can relate to a character who has all kinds of problems but doesn't know how to deal with it or isn't even aware that there's a problem to begin with. So denial and repression are the sort of you know touchstones of uh, defense mechanisms. And then beyond that, they get a little bit more complicated and I can talk about others if you'd like. Yeah, please do. Uh, this is amazing. And I love the um, walking injury. That sounds about right. Sure. Okay, well, so another interesting defense mechanism is reaction formation. 
which is when somebody um, acts in the opposite way towards a stimulus uh, because they can't accept something about themselves. And sort of uh, a, the, the classic version of reaction formation is when you have a character who's very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very aggressive or angry towards anyone who's homosexual or in any way not completely straight. Um, so the reaction formation would be that deep down inside, there's something about them that they're unsure of. Uh, maybe they're homosexual, or maybe they have some uh, counter-gender uh, inclination. They can't deal with it. They can't admit it to themselves. So it turns into rage, turns into anger. And anger directed at the self doesn't feel good, so we just direct it at other people. We direct it at other people uh, that we identify uh, on an unconscious level as symbolizing, epitomizing the, um, uh, the thing that we hate about ourselves. And the example I've used a few times, or a lot of times actually, in books and lectures, is the character I believe Frank Fit in uh, um, what uh, in American Beauty movie with Kevin Spacey and uh, Annette Bening. Uh, so he was the father of the boy who lived across the street. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you've seen the film, most people have seen the film. Uh, he's incredibly homophobic. Uh, to the point of, you know, not, not, not to give spoilers, but it's an old movie by, by this point, to, to, to the point where he murders the main character at the end because of his own homophobia and because of his own inability to deal with his own homosexual urges. And it's, it's done in a clever way in the movie because for the entire movie, he's extremely homophobic and then it's not revealed really until the very end, the last 10 or 15 minutes, that he in fact is a repressed homosexual. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, it's a great example. And your book, Psychology for Screenwriters, has been amazing for me personally. <clears throat> Just getting to understand how people how people act in different situations given their different wounds of the past. I mean, you can really create deep characters through that understanding. Yeah, and it doesn't really it doesn't take a lot to add depth to your character. You know, if if you just think about it. Um, just something in the backstories, so, uh, like a wound, you know, an injury that's there and lingering, and it, you only need need you know a sentence or so, you know, like or, or you know to a certain extent as a screenwriter, you can create that injury or create that wound and have the character reacting to it and not even really explicitly mention it in the film itself, but it's still going to be psychologically powerful. And sometimes um, the things that are the most powerful in the film are the things that are not explicit, the things that are uh, unrevealed backstory. You know, if you watch Star Wars, the first Star Wars, there's so much unrevealed backstory uh, that later does get revealed, but Star Wars in and of itself is a great movie. There doesn't have to be any movies coming after it. Uh, and, and the reason it was so powerful is because there was so much uh, underlying psychological content uh, in all of the characters um, that was really powerful. And it didn't have to be revealed in that film for it to become a blockbuster. Yeah, and and not revealing it almost um, incites our imagination, right? And and we go to work trying to figure out what's wrong with these characters. And you know, if we, if we go back to the sort of first point that a good character, a good story is about a good character, and a good character is somebody that we can relate to and identify with. Uh, 
then if you make things too explicit and too specific to that specific character, then other other people, the viewers, aren't going to be able to relate to that character. So you want things that are deliberately ambiguous and rather broad, not completely explained, to, because it increases the mystery and it also increases the ability to vicariously experience what the what the character is doing. Oh, that is fantastic. So by leaving those um, missing pieces, it kind of allows the audience to inject themselves in the character and see themselves unless it becomes more relatable. Yeah. And I think that's something that uh, uh, I, as a writer, uh, struggle with is how much do I reveal? How much do I give away? And usually the answer is as little as possible. (laughs) What you want to reveal is as little as possible. Uh, First of all, because it increases suspense uh, it creates uh, sort of strings and knots that have to be untied as the plot goes along and eventually comes to a, a denouement, a, a French word that untying all these unresolved uh, uh, strings or knots. Mm. And and so how, I, I love that point about not, uh, about withholding and not revealing everything. How do you kind of hint that there's something else? Oops. Excuse me. How do you kind of hint that there's something else under the surface? Um, do you yeah, I guess, do you show reactions? Um, that's why uh, I think symbolism is important. That was one of the one of the things that uh, we were going to talk about. Um, so a, a lot can be expressed visually uh, or through a song, through something that symbolizes uh, what uh, the thing that is important to the character. So yes, it could be a reaction to something, but that's something that they're reacting to has to be symbolic. Uh, and a, a symbol is, uh, my, you know, a symbol has many, many different definitions, but uh, the way I refer to the word symbol uh, when talking about analyzing a film or analyzing any uh, work of literature is that a symbol is something that represents something else and it's something that has to be interpreted. So, uh, you know, a stop sign is a symbol in its own way, but it's not a symbol in the way that I'm talking about it because it doesn't uh, need to be interpreted. If you look at a stop sign and you're like, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Then you're in trouble. Right. Uh, But symbols for characters uh, have to be interpreted, meaning it takes a little bit of a of mental energy to figure out, well, why is this important? What is this going on? What does this mean to that character? And when your viewer starts thinking, whether it's on a conscious or an unconscious level, that that's good. That means they're getting reeled into the film. They're identifying with the character and they're thinking about it. And they're, they're not just watching, they're not just a passive viewer, they're thinking about it, they're interpreting, they're engaged with it, and now it's almost like an interactive experience. Uh, when we talk about being engaged in a film, uh, as opposed to just sort of uh, passively watching it go by. Fascinating. And are these symbols always objects? Sometimes they're objects, uh, 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 like you know, like um, the the um, the ruby slippers in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, the, that's a symbol and that's an object. And it's very clear. You can interpret it however you would like to interpret it, but that's sort of a, a clear symbolic object. But symbolism can be played out in other ways. Sometimes uh, it could be done um, musically. The score of a film oftentimes gives us, uh, especially in older movies, um, uh, the directors and producers and the music, the musical directors were, weren't uh, very shy about being quite overt. So, you know, 
when a character would walk onto screen, that character would have a specific musical theme and it might be a sad theme. So it represents that there's something uh, uh, sad about this person, um, which is related to a, a symbol about, you know, what this character represents in the film. Um, so it could be a musical cue. It could be a song. Um, but, you know, usually it's an object. Film is primarily a visual medium. Uh, and usually there's a visual object to look at. And we say, ah, you know, there's the thing that we're not supposed to be consciously thinking about. But it gives us a little sort of psychological clue as to what's going on for this character. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And uh, I know we get the Imperial March with Darth Vader, right? Yes. And, and the Star Wars is an excellent example for that as well. Uh, where was it? John Williams was the, the musical director for that. Um, yeah, he has a theme for every character and he has a fat, sad theme, a triumphant theme and a conflicted theme. Um, but, you know, uh, and that's classic music, classic theme, uh, uh, theme music. Uh, but it has a purpose, um, you know. Uh, usually there, there is some symbolism just within the music itself. And so symbols, part of the point of symbols is to hint at something deeper about a character. Is that right? Yes. So some, something unseen, some, something that's not obvious, so that uh, the viewer has to start thinking about this character and start saying, well, what's going on? Uh, you know, wh- why did he react in that way? Um, uh, th- this isn't from a film, but uh, if you've seen the, the show Mad Men. Yeah. Uh, Mad Men is, you know, every episode was so packed with uh, content, psychological content that, you know, it could, every episode could be like a mini film in and of itself. But I remember there was one episode where um, Don's daughter was having a birthday and there was a big party and all kinds of stuff was going on. And then at the end of the party, he goes to pick up the birthday cake at the bakery and he doesn't bring it home. He just drives away and sits in his car with the cake there, and he never comes home to, to, to bring the cake back. And it's never explained why he doesn't do that. Obviously, he was annoyed at the people who were at the party and if stuff was going on. But I love that it's just never explained. And the cake itself then becomes a symbol of how he feels about his family, how he feels about his friends, how he feels about his life, how his neighbors. And so that cake becomes a wonderful symbol, not because it clearly represents something, but because it, it's it's very uh, unclear. It, it, obviously, it represents something, but what it does represent is completely uh, ambiguous, unrevealed. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that goes back to your point about withholding information and making us think more uh, when information is withheld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know you've written a couple books on symbolism. Can you talk to um, the psychological horror and uh, thrillers? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I mean, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of the horror genre uh, and thriller, horror, thriller genre. Um, I have a preference for the older horror, horror movies and thriller movies. Um, which is not to say that good ones aren't still being made, but starting in the 1980s, uh, the horror genre sort of got obsessed with um, gore, with you know the slasher movie, um, and you know, I, I, to me, that's not interesting in any way. Like seeing seeing somebody get hacked to death and seeing blood and gore, it's uh, uh, yes, it's scary and yes, it's thrilling, but. To me, there's nothing interesting in that, mainly because there's no depth to it. 
Uh, so uh, horror movies that interest me you know, are obviously ones that are more psychological, that have more depth. Um, so, you know, what do I mean by depth? Well, when there's more than one thing going on for a character, then you have depth. You have levels of symbolism or levels of conflict within the character. And you know, so in like the Friday the Thirteenth and the Halloween movies, the characters don't have depth. You have one character who's basically a monster who's just killing, 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 and then everybody is afraid of that character. And uh, so, so you have all these one-dimensional characters just kind of going through the motions. Um, a movie to me that's much more interesting, say, is, is a movie like The Shining or a movie like The Haunting, nineteen sixty-three, uh, by Robert Weiss. So these are movies where the main characters are uh, starting to doubt their own sanity. They're experiencing supernatural phenomena. Uh, but because the movies are so, uh, uh, they're not one dimensional, but the perspective is so first person, meaning everything is being experienced through this one person. We don't know if the ghosts they're seeing are real or if they're hallucinations. So the character is sort of stuck with this decision that they're working on, you know, for the 90 minutes or 120 minutes of the film, uh, the decision is, well, A, either I'm dealing with some supernatural phenomenon, which is terrifying and, you know, I'm, I should be horrified, or B, I'm losing my mind. I'm becoming becoming schizophrenic. I'm, I'm insane, which is even more terrifying. <laughs> I mean, my whole grip on reality, my whole life is shattered. My identity is shattered. My perspective is shattered. So it's a it, uh, it's a wonderful situation to put a character in out of Catch Twenty Two. Is either the undead are rising, and I'm sort of the re reality as I understand it doesn't exist, uh, and I'm in this situation of total horror, or it's all in my head, which is even more horrifying. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, depth being about a character going through. You know, two or more themes. Now, is that about having a a crisis? Kind of like you were mentioning, is this all in my mind, or is this actual supernatural phenomenon? Or how would you create themes for characters? Um, well, the, uh, so in order for there to be depth, there has to be more than one motivation. There has to be more than one thing going on for the character. Uh, and that's why typically if you have like your standard action adventure film, you have the hero and obviously the hero is going to go on their journey and they're going to accomplish whatever needs to be accomplished. Uh, but there's always that first act where... Uh, the hero doesn't want to do it. They're retired. They're uh, jaded. They don't want to deal with the people they have to deal with, they ha or they had a horrible, you know, uh, experience in their last adventure. And there's just there's always this backstory or something uh, that makes the character not want to go on the journey. And that's really important because that's the depth that you need. So you have you have a character who, on the one hand, knows well. I'm going to have to be the hero here and do what I have to do. But at the same time, I don't want to do it. And there's all these reasons why I don't want to do it. And there's reasons why I'm afraid of doing it. And there's guilt or there's other people stopping me. In the Western, there's always a female character telling the hero, don't go. This is about your pride. You know, why do you have to do this? And the character has to overcome the love of his life in order to be a man. You know, you have to, uh, a very standard theme in Western is you have to overcome your guilt and obligation to a woman in order to be a man. Um, but th these are sort of basic conflicts 
that you need to have or else the character is just one dimensional and uninteresting and the viewer is going to get uninterested in, and bail out you know, by the end of the first act. Another thing to mention just in terms of media is in the old days, if you wanted to watch a movie, you paid your nickel or whatever and you went to the movie theater and there was the movie in front of you. Nowadays, people watch movies on their phones or on their laptops or their TV. They have a million options. If something is boring, if the character is not engaging, uh, uh, they just bail out in 10 minutes. So you really have to hook the viewer and you hook the viewer with an engaging character. That's the thing that they're watching. Uh, everything else, genre, plot, um, you know, uh, uh, setting, those are all secondary or tertiary to the character. Interesting. And would you say then creating an engaging character is a lot about having that internal conflict? I, I like what you were saying about kind of the character having this pull to not address the problem, kind of trying to find out how they can avoid it, but then finding out that it's unavoidable. Yeah. And similar to when we were talking about denial, where uh, denial is when there's clearly a problem, but the person seems to be unaware of it because they're unconsciously denying it. Uh, uh, If we turn that into sort of a typical action adventure film, well, Clearly, there's a, a hero's journey that this person has to go on. They know it, but they don't want to do it. <laughs> and, and they're denying their responsibility or their obligation to do it. And, you know, g- generally something has to happen in order for them to overcome. In this case, it's not denial, but it's, a, you know, Joseph Campbell would call it a refusal of the call, uh, meaning there's the call to adventure. Obviously, you're going to go on the adventure. <laughs> there's two hours left in the movie. Uh, uh, it's not going to end the first act with the hero saying, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. Uh, he wouldn't be a hero in that case. Um, but yes, that resistance uh, that refusal, that reluctance, that is sort of the uh, explicit or uh, 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 outside version of denial. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, can you speak to Westerns then? I know you have an entire book on Westerns as well. Yeah. You know, well, Westerns, uh, uh, they were the dominant American film genre for um, most of the 20th century. So many Westerns were made. The, 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 um, uh, the classic period of the Western from the late 40s through the early 60s, almost uh, every other movie coming out literally was a Western. Plus, you know, half of the television shows were Westerns. And we lived in a society that was completely enmeshed and saturated in the Western myth. And uh, obviously the Western isn't as important now. Uh, Very few Westerns are being made, yet they still are being made. And a lot of the uh, archetypal themes and characters and settings created in the Westerns, we still see them in movies a lot. Uh, And so understanding the Western is key to understanding film specifically American film, um, uh, because a lot of the, uh, the basic hero, American hero character is, was born in the Western. And that basic hero character, what we call the archetype of the American hero character, is still the cowboy hero or the Western hero. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And so would you say then that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the basic symbols and, and such are, are rooted in those as well? Yes, certainly. Um, so um, if, if we just you know, uh, focus on the hero for a moment, um, 
generally in the action adventure uh, uh, arena of which the Westerns was, uh, was a very big part, uh, there's a hero character who ultimately, invariably, is going to have to solve the situation generally by himself or, you know, poss- possibly with allies. But they're going to usually they have to um, resolve the situation violently uh, through an excessive use of violence. And usually they're going to be breaking the rules, meaning it's not going to they're not going to get permission to kill the bad guy. Um, and they're 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 going to do it based on their own uh, judgment, on their own moral code, and that all comes from the Western. The idea that you know, in this mythic landscape of the Wild West, where there is no harsh or strict rule of law, the, he- the hero character is somebody who takes the law into their own hands. So that's heroism. <laughs> you, know, you know, what we call now vigilantism, um, yeah. you know, taking the law into your own hands. Well, it's difficult when we live in a society where that uh, 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 glorifies that, lionizes that in the image of the Western hero and the hero in and of itself. So the idea that any situation uh, can be resolved unilaterally, violently, according to your own moral standard, without holding to the laws of the land, um, that's, that, that comes from the West. That's a very specifically American mythos, an American ethos. Uh, and we see, that not, uh, we see that in our films, and then the film reflects our actual behavior as individuals and as a nation. You know, you know, that's, people, that's... The, the world seems to be completely perplexed uh, by America and its done problem. And the fact that, you know, there are so many guns and so many shootings, so many killings and other people in the world say, well, why don't you just get rid of your guns? <laughs> Wouldn't that seem to be an obvious uh, solution? And many people in America are saying, why, do, why, why are we so in love with our guns that they seem to be more important than people? It's more important to protect our guns to protect than protecting our children. And the reason is because partly uh, uh, or uh, uh, the myth of the Western, which is, you know, epitomized in film, but exists uh, all throughout America, especially in the late 19th and 20th century, that focuses on the gun. The gun is the central symbol of the Western mythology. Therefore, it's related directly to the Western hero, who I argue is the, um, uh, the, the, the American hero, the archetypal American hero that every American identifies with is a guy who has a gun and kills people. (laughs) So yeah, that's going to be a really hard thing to overcome. Uh, It's going to take, you know, hopefully not centuries, but, you know, until we change our mythology and change our uh, ethics related to that mythology. And until we change the heroes that we worship, we're going to have gun issues in America. At least that's my sort of psychological interpretation of it. Yeah, that is a fascinating perspective and it makes a lot of sense that the gun is a symbol of um, heroism heroism, and, and taking justice into your hands, essentially. Yeah, uh, um, in, in my book, The Psychology of the Western, uh, when I uh, sort of, uh, uh, talk about the hero in a nutshell, uh, I, I use the three eyes. Uh, the eyes are uh, individualism, independence, and isolation. Uh, These are the three characteristics of this classic hero, uh, the classic Western hero. He's an individual, uh, meaning he's not going to depend on other people to solve his problems. 
He's going to do it himself, and he's going to do it unilaterally according to his own moral code. Independence. Uh, he's going to fight for his own independence. He's going to fight for the independence of others. The Western hero is at all times opposed to prisons, to fences, to especially uh, barbed wire fences in the Western uh, setting. Um, so they're fiercely independent. If you tell the Western hero you can't have your gun, he's going to kill you or he's going to, you know, uh, uh, he, he's going to find a, a way to express himself without having to sacrifice his own freedom or independence. And then isolationism, uh, the idea that uh, uh, if, you could, uh, if you could isolate yourself from the rest of the world, then you could live according to your own standards of independence and individualism. It doesn't mean you're not going to have to defend it. You're going to have to defend it, oftentimes violently, typically violently, almost always with a gun. Uh, so, so if you just take those three eyes, independence, individualism, and isolationism, they're all related in one way or another to the gun. You can't have, you can't be independent, at least in the American idea. You can't be independent without a gun to back it up, nor can you live isolated without protection from the rule of law, without a way to defend yourself, without a gun. And you also can't be an individual and live your own life uh, and defend your own way that you want to live without a gun. <laughs> so the gun, yeah, becomes the, the central symbolic object in the Western. And yeah, it's, it, it's an issue. <laughs> it's an issue to be discussed, although nobody really discusses it. Yeah, that is fascinating. It's a great perspective, uh, the symbology there. Honestly, I had never thought of that. I mean, uh, another aspect of this idea of independence is that, you know, if we think of um, the Constitution, the De Declaration of Independence, it explicitly states in the Second Amendment that every American has the right to bear arms, which we now interpret as any weapon you want, <laughs> uh, which is probably was not the intention of Thomas Jefferson and the other uh, authors of the Constitution. But in any case, um, the fact that within our Bible, the American Bible of the Constitution, there is a clear amendment that comes second right after uh, uh, you know, all the freedoms of the First Amendment. Uh, it's, very, it's very clear that um, gun, guns and weapons are central to the American idea of what independence is. The First yeah. Amendment gives you all of these freedoms. The Second Amendment gives you the right to defend them to the death, to your death or to other people's death. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and a lot of being a hero is about defending your ideology. Yes, I mean generally the hero uh, is defending some type of ideology, some type of ethos, uh, an ethic that is important to them, uh, but is clearly not important to the person that they're fighting against. So uh, there's always going to be a, a moral battle. Every every hero's journey sort of culminates or climaxes in a a moral conflict between good and evil. Yeah, that is excellent, and. So that really goes into this idea of creating engaging characters. Um, do you have any quick tips uh, on creating just engaging stories in general? Or do you think if you can create engaging characters, that creates de facto engaging stories? I think, I mean, I, I think the key is character. That, that, that's the, uh, the touchstone. Uh, and everything uh, goes up from that. Um, 
obviously there needs to be a story, there needs to be plot, there needs to be other characters, there needs to be setting. So there, there's a lot that goes into a story or a screenplay. Uh, my argument is that it starts from the character and everything uh, comes out from the character. So that uh, you have a setting, the character isn't in the setting, the setting is in the character. <laughs> you see what I mean? Meaning and anything that you experience, the viewer experiences in terms of setting is through the eyes of the character. So everything is secondary to character, uh, which is why you can theoretically have a movie uh, where there's only one character and uh, everything is happening, you know, in their mind. Uh, they, you, know, you could have a movie that's taking, you know, well, that's taking place, you know, in the mind of a person. That is amazing. Thank you. I mean, your book, Psychology for Screenwriters, has been amazing for me personally for creating engaging characters and keeping the audience interested. Um, so I just want to thank you again for joining us, uh, Dr. Indick, and it's much appreciate, appreciated. And thank you for writing your books and sharing your wisdom with us. Well, um, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, thank you for your kind words. And yeah, I'd be more than happy to do it again on a different topic. Uh, I would love that too. And let I'll, um, I'll include links to your books in the show notes and anything else you'd like to include. And let us know when the next book's coming out. Yeah, um, it's, it's going to be in a couple of years. The next book isn't about film. It's about uh, media and how it affects um, mental illness. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's another media psychology book, but not specifically uh, looking at film or screenwriting. Definitely an interesting topic. Well, great. Yeah, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Have a good one. You too. Thanks again to Dr. Indic for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing his vast insights and knowledge about storytelling and psychology. I'll include links to his books and website in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. You can learn more about upcoming guests, our creative writing group, and writing workshops at our website, kingo.com. That's K-I-I-N-G-O.com. That's all for today. Now, let's get to work and write some great stories.